Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and joining me today is David Cornell, Chief Investment Officer at Ocean Dial Asset Management, which specialises in investing in India and is the manager of the India Capital Growth Fund. David has been covering India and emerging markets for the past 25 years and was previously based in Mumbai. David, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm fine, Mary. Thank you for having me. Well, India is getting a lot of attention at the moment, not least as investors are looking for alternatives to China and the stock market's been strong. But it was just a few months ago that we were seeing horror stories coming out of India with newspapers saying it had the world's worst coronavirus outbreak. What's the current COVID-19 situation in India and what do you think of the government's handling of the pandemic? So just to put things in context, the, the horrific scenes that winged their way back to this country via the TV of India's uh, second wave, April through till kind of June, were truly horrific. Uh, and I think it was the it was the Delta variant, that different variant that we now know so well, uh, that caused that massive spike in in um, infection in the infection rate in India, and it really exposed India's underinvestment in health infrastructure. I would say, if you look at the numbers in terms of percentages of the population, actually the outbreak in India wasn't really any worse than anywhere else. It was just the country's ability to cope with it. Um, and it came as a, as, a, as a massive surprise, I would say, because India had to some extent, for reasons we will never know, uh, and I count myself in this as well, had kind of come to the view that they'd somehow avoided a second wave. But uh, interestingly, that, that massive spike kind of fell apart just as quickly as it came. And if you look at the numbers now in India, the, the situation's relatively calm. It's about similar numbers to what we're seeing in the UK in terms of uh, new infections every day, about 30,000 every day, roughly speaking. But the uh, immunisation rate's gone up massively. So uh, the, the number of, of, uh, of the population that have had a single jab and have had a double jab is going up very fast. So there are over 680 million people now have been double, double jabbed in India. And the daily immunisation rate is sort of averaging anywhere between five and 10 million um, jabs a day. So they're getting through the population really quite efficiently now. And as we know, the vaccinations are working. So uh, we're, 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 I mean, you know, India watches and, and those that are heavily kind of involved in the day to day are watching very closely to see when the third wave will come. And we, as you will know that the festival season in India is about to start, it runs from kind of, uh, October through to late November, when a lot of gatherings meet um, families and 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 uh, and big outside gatherings. So we'll see, you know, whether or not that that's a trigger for a third wave. Right, that's quite a catch up on the vaccination rates. And from what I could see, the the second wave, in economic terms, wasn't as damaging as as the first wave in India. The government treated it very differently. In the first wave, uh, the country locked down and actually. Um, by pretty much any standards, it was the, one of the strictest lockdowns of any country globally. Uh, and that itself uh, caused a lot of uh, damage economically, but, but also in terms of hardship too. This time round, or the second wave, not unlike the developed world in this country, you know, the businesses were allowed to operate and were able to operate and had in innovative ways around 
the lack of um, of kind of physical infrastructure using technology principally. And uh, you know there are various ways in which we measure the the impact of the second wave and economically, and it, it's really bounced back very quickly. Uh, and in fact, economic growth is expanding in India now um, quite um, quite sharply, which is exciting. So perhaps as a reflection of that, the MSCI India um, index is up nearly 30% year to date, and that compares with less than 15% um, for the US stock market and less than 10% in the UK. What's been driving the growth of the stock market in India? Well, those, those are all quite impressive returns by any uh, stretch of the imagination. India has done very well this year as, as the market is pricing in expectations of an economic recovery. But it's not really just an economic recovery post-COVID. It's an economic recovery following four or five years of really quite disappointing economic growth and corporate profitability, which we believe India is now emerging from. And just to put that into context, this government, which was elected in 2014, has for the last seven years or so been uh, responsible for initiating a reform agenda, which long term will allow India to grow much closer to its potential true rate of growth in in a less cyclical way. But in the short term, has been very damaging to, to to investor sentiment and to and to corporate corporate's ability to expand. So by that I mean you will recall the demonetization exercise in 2017. Subsequent to that, we've had the introduction of an Insolvency and Bankruptcy Act. We've had the introduction of a Real Estate Regulation Act, uh, and we've had the introduction of Goods and Services Tax, which is a sort of nationwide VAT. All these reforms are very, very positive for the long-term future of India. We're moving away from what we call a patronage-based system of rules to a a more sort of uh, regulatory structure. Uh, You can no longer pick up the phone to Delhi and get something fixed, is what I mean. Now you have to go through a a, a kind of more structured process, a more regulated process, and that those goalposts uh, shifting has been quite unsettling for the private sector in India. Uh, and then you throw a bankruptcy crisis on top of that, which was in 2018, 2019, and then you throw COVID on top of that, and you can see that India has been through the, 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 the mill. So this recovery is pricing in uh, expectations of a more stable growth environment going forward, um, which uh, will attract more foreign investors to India than we've seen previously. That's interesting, because I was under the impression that when Modi became prime minister in 2014 people were were pretty excited about his reform agenda but that subsequently um, he's been seen to adopt an increasingly nationalist posture and perhaps the reform agenda hasn't been as um, the economic reform agenda hasn't been as as good as was hoped what's your thoughts on that so I think it's a it's a function of the way stock markets work isn't it they over extrapolate good news on the way up and they over extrapolate bad news on the way down and when Prime Minister Modi was elected in 2014, there was a lot of hope about this reform agenda, as you rightly point out. And the markets priced that in very quickly, really rather uh, quicker than uh, the government was able to implement the reform. And indeed, the reform implementation has been quite shoddy. But that, in my mind, is also a little harsh because we're talking about a country with a billion plus people. So implementation is not easy. 
but you know, up until 2017, the markets were priced very keenly in expectation of, of this reform agenda delivering high growth and high profitability. But it was harder to implement than expected and took longer to implement than the markets were willing to, um, to give it uh, to, to be patient for. And so as a consequence, the markets decided that Modi's reforms weren't working and because profits weren't growing as fast as they had expected. And so the market, having re-rated on the way up, then derated quite aggressively on the way down. This isn't working. We're not, we're not, you know, we're not happy with the, the, the speed. And but now we think that the shift has come, and this is possibly because of COVID. And your your nationalistic kind of question is also relevant, but we think the, the government has moved away from this kind of reform-based disruptive but ultimately positive um, strategic priority to more of a growth-driven agenda. I mean, India has a fiscal deficit that needs to be uh, managed, and it can really only be managed by growth. And I think the private sector is now waking up to the fact that the rules have changed, that we're operating in a, in a, in a better, better, sounder, more regulated environment. And bank debt has, to a large extent, uh, being um, resolved. I mean, not completely, but the banks are in a better situation than they have been for many years. And so we expect to see a, a kind of private sector uh, in investment-led earnings recovery. And that's what the market's currently pricing in. Sorry, long okay. answer. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, a common criticism of the Indian stock market is that it's too expensive, which is maybe, maybe at odds with some of what, what you were saying there. But presumably this has intensified following the strong run recently. What are your thoughts on valuations of Indian stocks? So there's no doubt that the market in relative terms is more expensive than other emerging market uh, stock markets and more expensive than it has been relative to its history. But these things are a little nebulous in my mind because when you look at a stock market in aggregate, it doesn't really tell you the underlying valuations of the companies that we're invested in. And, you know, as bottom-up stock pickers, as active managers, you know, we can navigate around the, the investable opportunities to find the value. Uh, as, an, as a passive investor, you know, you buy the exchange and you pay the value. So I think it's a little dangerous to talk about, about valuations in aggregate. That said, on paper, they are expensive. There's no doubt when you compare it to Russia or you compare it to China or you compare it to... But then you look at the growth opportunity that you're paying for and you think, well, if I just have uh, just the valuations for the growth expectations, then maybe it isn't that expensive because if I look at valuations two, three years forward, then what I'm buying today is going to deliver me some really strong earnings growth in the future then I'm happy to pay for that. And that's our job as the, as, the, as the fund managers to identify those opportunities where we see kind of consistent, transparent um, and compounding growth because the ability to compound earnings in India is really very exciting. You know, when we talk about 15, 20% every year, you know, that does compound um, at, a, at a higher rate than a, a bond yield does. As I was researching for this in, this interview, I was looking at the retail participation in the stock market and it struck me that it's very low, which perhaps isn't surprising, but there are reports on how it's been rising. I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the director of travel and, and if this might be an increasingly important part of the stock market in the future. It's a really, really important 
um, part, and it, 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 you're, it's shifting in a positive direction. And we've seen it now for two or three years where we're seeing a billion dollars plus a month coming into the market through what are called SIP, systematic investment plans, very often coming from savers, uh, domestic savers in tier two and tier three cities who are now putting in a regular monthly subscription into a mutual fund. And we see this trend increasing when we look at um, domestic savers exposure to equities as a percentage of their total savings pot. It's very low today by any comparison. Compare it to uh, developed markets, compare it to China. You know, it's really very low. So as uh, the economy continues to stabilize and inflation, structural inflation comes down and bond yields come down, then we would expect to see a shift from a sort of fixed income instrument into, a, into an equity um, which will help fund India's growth going forward because a lot of domestic savings are locked up in the fixed income market or even under the mattress. And it's this kind of formalization of that savings that is helping, will help to fund India's growth going forward. And it's been part of Modi's master plan, I would say, to bring those savings from under the mattress and into the financial markets to lower the cost of capital and to um, and to help fund that future growth. So it's a massive shift and we're very excited about it. As a, um, as a foreign investor, I think maybe corruption is an, is an issue that puts people off investing in India. How do you navigate this yourselves? Is it something you've come up against in the companies you invest in? It is. Um, I think I have to say that corruption is not something that's, uh, you know, India is solely uh, open to. I think every country uh, globally in developed markets as well as emerging markets face this issue. India is emerging very fast. We see huge improvements in corporate governance in India. Um, technology is enabling that rapidly and the Prime Minister is very much a, a tech guy in so much as he understands that technology can immobilise corruption and we've seen massive positive changes in, in the sort of mindset uh, of the way business is done in India to, to, to remove that, those corrupt, corruptive influences. So I think the direction of travel is very strong, not only because the government no longer tolerates it, certainly at the highest levels, and because technology is kind of intermediating in a way. The other aspect I think is important to note is that a lot of these companies, in particular in the small and mid-cap area market where this fund operates, you're seeing second and third generation entrepreneurs, uh, families whose sons and grandsons and granddaughters have been educated overseas and are coming back to India and are understanding that the best way to enhance the multiple on which your family's company is valued is to pursue a better corporate governance practice. Uh, and we're seeing that now. The huge wave of tech and digital companies that are coming to the market, the huge consumer-facing companies that um, are active in India are also, from a corporate governance perspective, enabling change because, of course, the consumer is very um, uh, uh, very kind of savvy when it comes to this kind of behavior and doesn't accept it. So I think it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a another massive positive shift. It'll take a long time to, to evolve, but the, the 
the wherewithal is there and the mindset is changing. Yes, and there's a good alignment of interests with the, the family-owned companies. Do, do you have a team on the ground in in India? We do. We have, we, have, we have a team of seven, two portfolio advisors uh, and five sector analysts. And the way we manage the governance and the, the issues that you alluded to is that we we run an investable universe of about 145 companies. India's got a, thousands of listed companies, but we whittle that down to a, a universe of 145 companies, which we call the House of Ocean Dial. And very simply put, it's kind of, you know, would you invite this person or this company into your house? Are these the kind of people that you want to interact with? And that is a is a qualitative and quantitative screening process. And then, you know, once we, we have this dynamic list of 145 investable companies, then each analyst will split down. So they all have between 25 and 30 companies to, 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 to analyze. And they, they live and breathe those companies 24-7. And they go deeper and deeper into the same companies. Now, the list is dynamic. So one or two go out and one or two come in. But basically speaking, the, the portfolios are constructed from those 145 companies. And so we, we, we've kind of, we do our best in it from an ESG perspective as well. This helps our screening process from a governance perspective, from a public sector enterprise perspective. Uh, there are lots of ways in which that, that house of ocean data is constructed. It's great. I guess it's a luxury in India compared with other emerging markets that there are so many, so many stocks that you can screen through. It's amazing because India has an investable universe that is far more diverse than a lot of its emerging market peer groups. You know, India is really well represented in the stock market from an economic perspective. There are a, a, a huge range of investable sectors crossing the economic spectrum, which isn't the case in, you know, countries which are very commodity rich or very tech focused. It, they tend to be one trick ponies, whereas India, I think, is a true representation. Well, I want to come back to more fund-specific questions, but just on the um, on the the bigger picture at the moment, how how worried are you about the power crisis in India? It seems to be um, affecting a lot of a lot of countries worldwide. But imported coal prices are shooting up. Bloomberg reported that coal-fired power stations in India had an average of four days' worth of stock, and coal in India is currently used to produce almost seventy percent of electricity. Is this a worry to you? Uh, at the moment, I mean, companies in India, in some ways, this, this, I mean, India is kind of quite experienced in dealing with power outages. And so, it, it, you know, although the, the, the perceived shortage of coal globally hasn't yet impacted India, coal India, most of India's um, coal-fired power is um, supplied from domestic um, uh, sources, although at the margin, uh, coal imports do come depending on the quality of the coal and depending on the sort of uh, the levels of demand. But broadly speaking, India is self-sufficient in coal. And we haven't seen any material outages beyond the norm as a consequence of, of what you're, of what we're seeing globally. And most businesses in India are, are able to manage the power outage should it come their way since they've been managing that really since time began. And so I think India is in, in, I mean, without trying to sort of um, put too gild the lily, uh, India is actually probably better placed than most. And actually, you know, we're not seeing, uh, we're not seeing huge outages yet. And the power companies are not yet operating full capacity. So I think there's a bit more fat in the system for the time being. 
there is a lot of talk of India benefiting from multinationals turning away from China. Could you expand on what this means in practice and perhaps yeah. um, if any of your holdings are directly benefiting? So it's very interesting, I think, that, again, as part of the Prime Minister's economic strategy going back to 2014, 2015, they've been trying to improve what's called what they call ease of doing business. And there is a World Bank index that measures ease of doing business across 190 uh, countries. And there's, a I don't know how many underlying uh, component parts go into the measurement of that index. But to give you India's story, it's moved from 132nd in 2013, uh, fractionally behind Sierra Leone, to 63rd today, fractionally behind Italy, in terms of ease of doing business. Whilst the, the economic growth rates actually have fallen dramatically, because I, I, I mentioned earlier that, that you know these reforms, whilst very positive, have had a destabilizing, destabilizing impact on economic growth in the near term. So ease of doing business in India, the ability for multinational corporations to do business in India has become a lot easier in the last four or five years. And we are seeing um, uh, a, a shift not just because of the, the, the supply chain risk out of China, but also because India's uh, labor cost is now one third of China's. So there is a huge competitive advantage at a time when India is also becoming easier to do business in from a regulatory perspective. And so the, the important thing to understand is that relative to China, the, the marginal impact is huge, even if a small amount of of uh, production capacity shifts from China to India, you see a huge in incremental benefit at a time when a lot of multinational corporations want to get exposure to the Indian consumer as well. So it's a great place to build an operating uh, uh, plant because not only can you export cheaply, but you can also sell domestically. And in a number of niche sectors like specialty chemicals, electrical equipment manufacturing, um, pharmaceuticals, we are seeing Indian companies win market share. And the portfolio is definitely benefiting from that. We've got a company called uh, uh, PI Industries, which is a, a manufacturer of agrochemicals, which is seeing a market share uh, coming uh, out of China and into India. We've got a company called Dixon Technologies that manufactures electrical equipment, telephones, mobile phones, washing machines, TVs. It does it for the multinational branded companies uh, who want to shift a bit of their manufacturing facilities away from China and into India. So they're uh, acting as a as a uh, outsourced supplier for those. And the Indian government is providing quite a lot of incentives, subsidy incentives to encourage global uh, companies and also domestic manufacturers to shift production. So it's kind of... Um, a combination of, of, of stars falling into line. I mean, the China-US trade wars has helped India, the pandemic and the supply chain risk has helped India, but India has also been helping itself over the last four or five years to make itself more attractive. And, and that sort of confluence is working quite well. So do you prefer those types of companies that you just, just described to the tech companies um, that are that people are getting quite excited about. Zomato listed yeah. recently. They're two different types of companies. Which do you think offer a better opportunity? So it's a it's a like like the portfolio is concentrated. It has about thirty two stocks in it, but we have exposure to various different sectors and technology and 
um, is one, and what we call China plus one is is another. Both areas are exciting. Um, the valuation uh, of these companies is key, and we're bottom up stock pickers. So we look at each company on a on an individual basis and judge it on its own merits and its own valuations relative to its own sector, relative to its own history, or relative to what we think its growth opportunity is. So we have both in the portfolio. And I think both are equally exciting. The tech and digital thing is just beginning to open up. And it's fascinating the way the global marketplace is starting to look at India and go, there's a digital consumer in India that looks not unlike a digital consumer in China. And we've been very focused on the Chinese digital consumer for the last five or six years. But now we're starting to see what's happening in India. And the 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 Indian stock market has never really had a, an Alibaba or a Tencent to get excited about. And so a lot of the digital activity has been happening in the unquoted market. But as Zomato and others come to list, so the opportunity for a liquid investor to get exposure becomes real. And then the sort of, um, the, 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 you know, the focus, the narrative shifts. And we're very excited about that opportunity in the portfolio uh, as we see more and more of these digital companies beginning to list led by Zomato. Do you invest in IPOs? We have the ability to invest in IPOs. We have the ability to invest in in pre-IPO. We don't have any pre-IPO investments in the portfolio today. We are sometimes reluctant to invest in IPOs because very often if it's very hot, it's very hard to get a decent amount of stock. Uh, And you have to be careful who's the winner in this equation. Is it the seller or the buyer? So quite often we prefer to wait and see how the stock trades um, in the aftermarket, because that way you, you know, you just sort of, when the the froth and the noise has kind of fallen away, you you might find you get a better opportunity to acquire a slightly larger uh, position uh, at more attractive. So never say never, but, you know, we're we're not sort of... um, wedded to that IPO story, I would say. Yeah, no, it's just interesting because um, I noticed that Pacific Horizon had invested in three private Indian companies recently. And, and as far as I could see, you, you didn't invest in on list of companies as you confirmed. So I wondered if that might be a trend that you were considering following. But It, 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 it is something we're looking very closely at. And I think the closed-ended structure of the investment trust, like Pacific Horizon, gives us a really good opportunity to to invest in companies in the tech and digital space who don't necessarily see the the listing as that important part of their journey because the boundaries between unquoted and quoted are breaking down as Pacific Horizon and others like Scottish Widows, uh, sorry, Scottish Mortgage have identified historically. And and so because there's, you know, the capital, these are not capital intensive businesses. Um, And so if we can buy a company pre-IPO and hold it in perpetuity, you know, all other things being equal, then the investment trust is a perfect vehicle for that because unlike a private equity fund, they have to return that cash to shareholders of their own at some point. Whereas in the investment trust, we don't have to do that uh, because we're quoted and you can buy the shares or sell the shares through the secondary market. So sort of, yes, absolutely very interested in, uh, but we will take it step by step. So, as you said earlier, it's a concentrated portfolio of small to mid-cap companies. 
what type of growth rate are you expecting from from the companies well actually uh if i look one year forward which is financial year 23 for india we're expecting around about 30 percent earnings growth in the portfolio for the next two years which is i think the highest we've seen certainly for as long as i've been involved which is about 10 or 11 years now Part of that is coming off a low base. We have to accept that um, because of the earnings um, uh, sort of downgrades that happened as a consequence of, of the yeah. pandemic. But part of that is because we are coming out of this earnings recession uh, that India's experienced over the last four or five years. And we think companies are quite well placed to generate quite decent returns, partly because their costs have been trimmed back and back and back over the last four or five years as earnings have disappointed. So there's quite a lot of operating leverage in the system. You know, we expect margins to expand and we expect top line to, to grow, but bottom line to grow a bit faster. So 30 and 30 for the next couple of years, if we can deliver it, is, um, is quite exciting. And, but just to put it in context, the, the portfolio has grown around about 15% per annum, compounded about 15% per annum in sterling terms for the last... 10 or 11 years. So, you know, it's quite volatile, but we would expect over the years to do something around 12 to 15%. Why do you not have any gearing in the portfolio? The reason is principally because of currency risk. You know, if you borrow in sterling and, and your portfolio is in rupees, you're exposed to that currency risk. Now you can hedge the currency risk, but the cost of hedging are quite high. And you have to make it a, an investment view about the timing of the hedge and the cost of the hedge. And you can get those decisions wrong, you know, and we're stock specialists, we're not currency specialists. And so we take the view that if we can deliver 12 to 15% in sterling terms without any gearing, and we don't expose ourselves to any currency risk or any timing risk, then, you know, that's, that, that, that should be, that should be a, a, good, a good enough result for most, for most investors. Um, have you been repositioning the portfolio for a post-pandemic world? So there's been huge disruption. How has that affected your portfolio? Actually, we have. And, and you'll see, Mary, from the historic numbers, that the three and five year relative performance is, is disappointing in the trust. And we went through a period in following 2017, 2018 and 20, uh, 27, late 17, all 18 and 19, when we underperformed really quite badly. And as a management company, we went through a whole uh, kind of overhaul of our investment process. We, uh, we tried to identify the reasons why we'd made, what mistakes we'd made, why we'd made them, what we were doing right, what we were doing wrong, what we could improve on, what we needed to ditch. And out of that came a revised, refreshed investment process, which was launched in kind of late 2019. The volatility around the pandemic in March 14, uh, March 2020 through to kind of April 2020, gave us an opportunity to, 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 to buy into a lot of really high quality companies at, at very low valuations. And so the, church, the turnover in portfolio is quite low historically, but in the last 18 months, we've actually added 11 new stocks to the portfolio. Um, and most of that buying was done in kind of March, April, May 2020. Can you tell me a bit about the, your favourite stock of the new additions? <laughs> they're, they're, they're all they're all favourites. 
Uh, <laughs> no, but we we there are a couple of stocks we've we've acquired recently that that I think look quite uh, we're, we're confident will g- generate decent returns going forward. One is a company called Sona S O N A B L W. It's a precision precision forging company in the auto components sector. It has two uh, specific business lines and a, a driveline business that makes uh, gear assemblies and differentials and an electrical, electrical division that makes starter motors and and um, and the both those divisions are in some ways a play on the electrical electric vehicle segment globally. This is a company that supplies Tesla's plant in China. In fact, it's the sole supplier of differentials and gears to Tesla's um, plant in China. Uh, and it's a combination of precision engineering and low labor cost and uh, a vehicle segment or a section of the auto market that we think is obviously going to uh, become more relevant going forward. So that's a company we're very excited about. And we it listed, fun enough, a, a private equity, a, a global private equity business listed a part of their position in the market and we bought it at, at that point. And another company we bought recently is a is a an advertising digital advertising company called Affle India A W F L E, which does all its business on the mobile uh, on the smartphone. Ninety nine percent of all India's internet traffic happens on the smartphone. They've skipped the laptop and desktop journey that we're all religiously clinging to here, and it's a good example of the way uh, third world countries like India are leapfrogging. Um, actually, electric vehicles would also be an example of that. Are, are kind of, you know, a young population are less kind of wedded to the old style of of, of operating and are, are much more willing to uh, uh, to endorse new technology. And Affle uh, has a model where the network effect works very strongly. The more hits they get, the more hits that they manage to convert into a paying customer. The more traffic they get to the site, the more business they attract from from the advertising agencies that want to use the platform. So it's a digital advertising business. It's unique in so much that it it only generates revenues when the impression uh, gets converted into a paying customer. So there is an alignment there that differs from from a lot of the competition. And again, we think you know smartphone usage, uh, digital advertising, uh, uh, that combination is 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 a good one and Affle is is you know one of the best in in the sector so it's not just india where it operates it operates globally but india is about 50 percent of its revenues yeah mobile is definitely a, a massive opportunity in india as yeah. you say i did think of india yesterday with the um facebook outage just because the amount of businesses that are conducted solely via whatsapp and facebook there that's right um anyway sorry the just my final question do you ever sell companies just on the basis that they get too big by market cap by market cap yeah because you said you focus on small and mid cap but you might miss out on potential we, growth yeah we fun if we if i look at a breakdown of the portfolio by market capitalization and we define we have our own definitions for small mid and large which will vary from others but we've got three companies which by definition are large caps but they've they were bought as mid caps and they've evolved into large caps through the growth in the business and the stock market valuation. So we would never buy a large cap in this portfolio, but we might 
old large cats because we don't want to sell them for that reason. Okay, that makes sense. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on. That was really interesting and really appreciate your time. Not at all, Mary. Thank you for having me in and, um, you know, please ask me again. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.